Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Thursday morning, the 5th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. On yesterday's programme, we heard independent TD Michael Lowry speaking in uh, the Dáil saying it was a scurrilous slur to suggest he was a tax dodger and how he wanted Paul Murphy to retract comments made about him. We asked Minister Damien English if he would support Michael Lowry to this end, given how the government relied on Larry's support to remain in power. The minister wouldn't involve himself. Michael, I don't run the doll. That's the can call job, so you may talk to them. And please, I don't know what you want me to do here, but I, I'm not getting involved in the story with Michael Larry and Paul Murphy. It's nothing to do with me. Um, I've enough to do with my own job, to be honest with you. So the can call runs the doll. He can deal with the two deputies involved. Um, and if they've okay. got concerns, they can deal with that. I'm not sure what you want me to say on that, but... Damien English is one of three Fine Gael TDs in County Meath and uh, along with Helen McEntee and Regina Doherty, he voted to support the Minister for Housing. Fine Gael joined forces with independents Michael Lowry, Dennis Nocton and Noel Grealish. They won the vote because Fianna Fáil did not want Owen Murphy out of office. I want Owen Murphy out of office as soon as possible. Ah, but I do, not, I do not want to no, give Fine Gael the chance that's, to open a new page on housing. I want them out of office in the general election. That's not true. I want the housing crisis. You, you, sh- housing crisis you should retract that statement now, in fairness, because if you wanted them out of office, you had the opportunity last night and you didn't take it. We want Fine Gael out of office and the only way to get them out of office is to put them before the people uh, in the spring and I am looking forward to that and I hope that the people will agree with me. That well, we it is now. That's true. We need a change it, that, that, that's policy. true. The only way to do it is in the spring now because you didn't avail of the opportunity last because, night. Because, because every voter now would have the chance to put the whole lot of them out of office and to get a fresh start on housing where actual policy changes and simply not PR and spin... 
That's Thomas Byrne, who, along with Shane Castles, uh, is uh, the fit of fall representation in County Meath. Both TDs abstained in the vote. That leaves one other, the sixth TD in County Meath. Ain't to is Patter Tobin, who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us. You voted against uh, Owen Murphy, uh, the only TD in Meath, to vote against uh, the Minister for Housing. Uh, but uh, give Given the numbers uh, and how slim they are now, it seems that the government uh, survived by the skin of their teeth. Uh, would you agree that a, a general election is nigh? Yeah, it, it's shocking that I am the only TD in County Meath that voted against uh, the Minister for uh, Housing in a time of extraordinary uh, housing crisis. Uh, and there's many people throughout Laos and Meath who are completely locked out of the, the housing situation. They're either stuffed from, you know, the mortgage distress of the last crash still, or they're paying exorbitant rents, or they're on the housing waiting list, or many of them will be homeless. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the measure of a, a minister is whether or not their particular policies are actually functioning. And it's very clear by any measure that Minister Murphy's uh, policies are not functioning. Indeed, things are getting worse. And there was a report yeah. by the Simon community mm. this morning, which actually showed that they had a massive increase in the number of people who've used their services uh, over the last year. And yet, Fianna Fáil have refused to hold uh, any of the Fianna Gael ministers to account. And one of my strong... Well, we hear Thomas Byrne there saying they want Owen Murphy out of office, uh, but they don't want a, a general election now for a number of reasons. They don't think it would be good for the country. Apart from the timing of it, uh, there's uh, the issue of a Brexit to contend with. Uh, but uh, despite their support or the... Uh, lack of appetite to be involved in a heave, Fine Gael blame Fianna Fáil for the crisis. Well, it's, it is amazing that we have probably one of the first times I can remember in history an actual opposition refusing to actually call look for an election. In most cases, oppositions are pushing for an election all the time on the very basis that they believe that they have better policies and can do better job than the government, and therefore want to oust the government mm. so that they can implement their policies. But the Fianna Fáil is, is one of those really strange beasts. It's the very few uh, governments in history, or oppositions in the history of the state, that have actually refused to yeah. actually want an election. De- Dennis Docton uh, supported the government. He, he said in return for that, uh, he got uh, changes made to, to the Fair Deal scheme. Uh, would you be concerned uh, that the government did some sort of deal with Michael Lowry. Uh, we, there's uh, no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt that there are pork barrel deals being done with TDs um, in so-called mm. independent opposition TDs in the Dáil. And I think it's it's, it's one of the, the do, least do, do, do you think it was surprising? Sorry, do you think it was surprising that Damien English wouldn't support Michael Lowry given how Michael Lowry supported the government? Well, uh, Damien English was looking to, to walk a tightrope of not uh, coming down either way. I think he was getting splinters in his behind there with regards to sitting on the fence because mm. um, either he, uh, he he's able to call out Michael Larry for what Michael Larry has done mm. or he's, he's going to support Michael Larry, but obviously he's dependent on... Michael well, we did tease that out with him a little bit as well, because uh, if deals are being done, uh, there's another question, because Michael Lowry, it seems, wants a separate budget allocated for housing refugees. Uh, and Damien English wouldn't say if he supported that or not. He said he didn't know about it. Uh, but uh, if he's to do a deal with Michael Lowry and do a deal with Noel Grealish, uh, they could 
run into trouble because uh, I, I think Noel Grealish doesn't want any of the African spongers here. Should Damien English be supporting that? Well, first of all, can I say that um, these independent TDs are cutting deals for further investment in their own bailiwick, in their own mm. loca- locality. They may come out in public with you know, big policy issues, but it's, it's trying to get more funding into the, to the local areas. And that's wrong because funding should be on the basis of need. And we all know here in County Meath that there's a massive need for transportation uh, and health services here that we're not actually getting. So uh, focusing government or taxpayers' money in the direction of independent TDs who are actually voting for the, go- for, for the government is wrong. It's the worst type of politics uh, mm. that happens. Uh, with, with, with regards to the bigger picture here, it, 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 it always makes me smile that you have the likes of Leo Varadkar, who tries to pretend he's the woke, most woke T-shirt that we've had in the history of the state and tries to, to um, virtue signal in so many different ways. And yet his government is actually dependent on, upon people um, such as Michael Larry and... And uh, Noel Grealish. And uh, Damien English was saying yesterday, don't know what you're on about, don't know why you're asking me this, don't know what you want me to say about it. And I put it to him that the reason I was putting these questions to him was because that's the moral sand that is the foundation that allows this government to be in office. Uh, and he said, that's your opinion. Uh, is that your opinion, Patrick Tobin? Well, I don't know if there is any moral sense uh, on which this government stands. Uh, this government is... Well, it, it survives with the support of Michael Larry and Noel Grealish, obviously. It does indeed, but like the, there's, there's no moral compass uh, to the Taoiseach in any ways. Yesterday we had a situation where we had uh, a Darren Murphy, a Fine Gael TD, uh, who has got hundreds of thousands of euros under false pretenses, literally mm. had not spoken in the Dáil since 2017, had spoken once... In a, com- in a committee uh, in two years, mm. puts about seven parliamentary questions into the doll in two years, bobbed in to the doll on the way over to the European Union mm. and claimed all of this money, and yet the Taoiseach stands full square behind Sarah Murphy. There's, that, there's well, no He told Michal Martin yesterday there's uh, plenty of uh, Fianna Fáil TDs who are double-jobbing, uh, and sort of, yeah, but that, to but paraphrase, he said it was the, the pot and, calling and, and, the kettle black. But but just go back to the... Can I just make one point? Yeah, this yeah, goes yeah. back to your debate mm. with, with uh, Thomas Byrne mm. yesterday. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are two sides mm. of the one coin. They, they are, are regularly uh, hectoring each other from one side of the door mm. to the other. But it, it's literally like looking in a mirror because both parties participate in the same policies and the same low standards of governance as well. Okay. And that's one of the reasons... Mm. And we'll come back to that in a moment because it, it is an important point and it's uh, where I would like to go with uh, this conversation. But before we get there, let's talk about the numbers in the doll because, as you say, Dara Murphy is gone. And if we go back uh, to the vote, uh, it was one by three, which included the three independents, including Grealish and Lowry. Uh, but uh, if Dara Murphy had being gone, uh, that would have given a majority of two. If Thomas Pringle had been in the doll and he couldn't be, it would have given a majority of one. Uh, and if the government didn't have the support of Larry or Grealish or told them they didn't want their support, uh, it could have been a completely different picture. Yes. So we have a dead duck doll, which is hardly able to, to move or to function whatsoever. The government loses votes on a regular basis. And it's, it's like a zombie simply walking through until the next year. And all at, at exactly the same time, we have massive crisis in, in housing, in healthcare, in regional development and in transport. So, you know, logic would dictate 
if an elected representative has the best interests of his constituents at mm. heart, that that uh, elected representative would push for an election so that they could implement a proper functioning doll. And, and that's, that's obviously not happening whatsoever. Um, you know, it, it would have been literally 6-1 news a few years ago if a government lost uh, a bill in the doll. The government loses bills every single day. With the going into vote in Leinster House, uh, in, in in a few minutes, and the government will lose votes even today. Right. It should be it should be put out of its misery. We should have a new government, a government that is willing to spend at least two point two billion euros on, on social housing to make sure that we have adequate social housing stock. A government that will reform the level of speculation that's happening uh, within uh, the, the housing sector, that will properly tax big land banks that are held just to see prices rise. A government that will actually tax these vulture funds. The UN wrote a report last year okay. which said that this government was okay. not properly uh, taxing uh, vulture funds. Uh, and, you, and these uh, vulture funds are buying up all the available And you, could, you could continue with the criticism and the issues that you would criticise the government over, but I have a suspicion that you would continue to say that Fianna Fáil mirrors the policies of the government uh, and you were making that Tweedledum, Tweedledee argument and what's the difference between the two of them a moment ago. If that is correct... What is the point of a general election? It's inevitable that there's going to be an election, uh, whether that's uh, immediately after Christmas or sometime into the spring or towards early summer. Uh, it's We're on the brink of it. Uh, but what is the point uh, if the two main parties uh, are really the only contenders to form a government and their uh, identical copy fits of each other? Well, first of all, we, can't, we don't have a crystal ball. At least my crystal ball, the batteries are not working on it at the moment. So we don't know what the outcome is going to be uh, this time, next May, etc. And I believe that the, it is very likely that you will have a further shrinking of that Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael vote, uh, which will actually result in a more of an alternative type of politics being put in front of the electorate. Uh, political parties like myself, we fought in a, in a, in a by-election uh, this week uh, in Wexford and in Cork. We got very, very decent votes. We got... 5.2% of the votes in, in Wexford, which was half a doll seat. So in constituencies like Wexford now, into is actually going to be contending for seats. Our party came ahead of the Social Democrats. It came ahead of people for profit, mm. solidarity, and ahead of independence for change. Okay. There is uh, a, a new movement of people growing around the country. And you're entitled to, are, to, to sincere... As, as uh, alternative to this. You're, you're entitled to hold that view, uh, and I'm sure it's sincere. Uh, you're entitled to make those points, whether they're political points or otherwise. But the reality of the situation, which I'm sure even you will accept, is that for the next 10 years, if not 10 years, 5 years, and certainly for the next year or so, there is no prospect of a government being formed in this country if it does not involve either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. I think the biggest mistake that any commentator or even politician can make is to think that what's happening now will continue into the future. Um, I've, you know, watched politics for many years. In the next uh, year, though, really? In, 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 let's say, OK, in, in 2008, nobody would have understood what was going to happen in 2009. And, you know, literally, uh, there are very big changes that happen within the political development mm. of a country and the economic development of the country. And, and, the, uh, and the, the austerity parties... That we're in at the uh, moment uh, is not guaranteed. Uh, and the austerity parties continue to have the majority of seats in Dáil Éireann. Uh, regardless of what happened in 2008 stroke 9 uh, and in the course there, there, of, in the course I, I of the next year there is no prospect of a government being formed without the involvement of either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. I agree with you on, on this point 
we have a very embedded establishment in this country. Uh, we have many people who still vote traditionally, many people who vote uh, the way their parents voted in this country. And um, we have, and it seems like, much inertia with regards to uh, the development of new political organisations mm. in this country. And none However, of, none, I will none, say, none of the alternatives have the numbers anyway. I, I, I will say this. Our political party didn't exist last year. Mm. We have 2,000 new members in our party. We have 66 functioning coming across the country. We have fought uh, two, uh, two local elections in which we got 5% of the votes in each of the constituencies on average that we fought in. Mm. We fought a by-election just very recently in which we uh, we actually got uh, 3% of and, the votes. And good luck to you, but, but, but not and a hope. La- Labour doesn't in, have a hope. Sinn Féin doesn't even have a hope of forming government in the next year without the involvement of one of uh, the two big parties. Well, again, I am not going to sit here and pretend that I know the results of the election in 2020. (laughs) What I will sit here and do is to put serious alternative policies uh, in in front of the people and say that there is an opportunity to kick out this type of political establishment, the type of political establishment that is built on cronyism, that sees some of its TDs draw down hundreds of thousands of euros while they literally take flights to another job, Uh, the type of political cronyism that says... We can't have an election in Ireland because of Brexit. Yeah. And at the same time, the Tories are having an election in Britain. Or, or, or keep them in office, which uh, I suspect is what you're expecting. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Patter Tobin, a TD for Meath West and leader and founder of the Ain2 Party. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, following 72 hours of questioning at Kevin Street Garda Station, Dundalk woman Lisa Smith was taken to Dublin District Court yesterday and, as you know, she was charged with terrorist offences. The Irish Times crime correspondent Conor Gallagher was in court and he joins us on the line this morning. And a very good morning to you, Conor, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Lisa Smith went to Syria in 2015 and the charge here is that she was uh, a member of an unlawful organisation from the time she was in Syria up until her return home to Ireland. That's right, yeah. This is a a law that was introduced in 1939 initially um, to deal with domestic uh, terrorist organisations. And in 2005, the legislation was amended to make it apply to foreign foreign terrorist organisations. So... Uh, Miss Smith facing a single charge, membership of an unlawful organisation, styling itself the Islamic State, or um, well, the, the charge sheet goes on to list um, several uh, various names that, that ISIS goes by. Mm. Um, so she appeared in court yesterday morning in Dublin District Court Number Four in the Criminal Courts of Justice. She was brought to court by um, Gardaí from the Special Detective Unit, and it was a relatively lengthy uh, hearing. Um, for an initial hearing, um, the court heard details of the arrest. So, as you said, Miss yeah. uh, Smith was held for seventy-two hours and questioned for seventy-two hours. That came after her arrest um, by Gardaí when she, after she arrived home from Turkey, she was flown home from Turkey by um, Department of Foreign Affairs officials, mm-hmm. uh, supported by members of the Defence Forces. And um, once she landed in Dublin Airport, she was arrested by Gardaí from the Special Detective Unit. Um, so, yep, she was brought yeah. to court yesterday. She was wearing a, a black burqa with a winter coat over uh, over it. She sat in court. The prison officers uh, didn't say anything for most of the hearing except to beckon her solicitor over to, to tell
tell him something at one stage. Um, her face was uncovered for the start of the hearing, mm. and then after a few minutes, she she kind of pulled up her her face covering. Um, and reporting and, on what uh, was said in court is restricted uh, by order uh, to some degree, uh, although there are some details uh, that you can give us. It was a, a very lengthy hearing. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that uh, the charges were being preferred over a course of 40 minutes, but there was a, a lot of detail because it's an unusual case. I, I gather that's why uh, it, it took so long. Uh, but as, as you said, she was wearing this black burqa, but her, her face uh, was visible to you for some time. How did she look to you? Did she look calm or did she look upset? Because I think her sister described her or her barrister described her as being emotional. Yeah, no, she looked pretty calm. Um, No visible signs of emotion. Um, As I said, you could only uh, see her face maybe for the initial part of the hearing and then she she covered up the vast majority of her face. Um, Her solicitor did say, and and, and one of the reasons the the hearing took so long Mm. was because there was an application for bail. But uh, which was denied. But the, uh, as part of the, the submission uh, for that bail application, her solicitor said she's in a very emotional state, and he reminded the court that Miss Smith has uh, is separated from her two-year-old daughter now. Um, this is the daughter that she had in Syria, and um, he says it's heartbreaking for her to be separated from this child that she brought through uh, the desert, brought through bombs, brought through poverty, brought through these camps. Uh, these refugee camps, which he describes as horrendous. Um, so she said that's her that's her primary concern, and, 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 and she's in a very emotional state at the minute. And that was part of his uh, plea for mm. her to be allowed out on bail. And he said she could be allowed out on bail on strict conditions. Um, the guards had uh, objections to that. The guards said that uh, well, they had various objections, and we can't go into any detail except to say that uh, they believe to choose her flight risk. Um, which is one of the, the, the reasons often put forward for, for denying bail. Um, uh, this was rejected by her defence. Uh, Lisa Smith's defence said that this is a woman who left the refugee camp and went north into Turkey just so she could get back to Ireland and get her daughter to Ireland, that she's no reason to flee and that she's every incentive to to turn up in court for the next day. Um, but the guard said that there's no bail conditions that they would be happy with that would uh, allay their concerns that she wouldn't show up. So in the end, mm-hmm. uh, Judge Colin Daly uh, denied bail and remanded her in custody to the Dokus Women's Prison. Am I right in thinking, Connor, uh, that uh, the defence said yes? Lisa Smith travelled to Syria and therefore to Islamic State but they argued that Islamic State is not a terrorist organisation that it is an area that is under Muslim rule and that she was lured there or preyed on because she was a vulnerable person and was told that under the Quran she should have lived in what is known as a caliphate, an Islamic State an area of land that is under uh, Muslim rule yeah, that's correct. Uh, her solicitor, Peter Corrigan, said that after Miss Smith left the defence forces, uh, she was very or uh, she was very vulnerable. She was suicidal. Uh, she was someone who was looking for answers in life, and that she was preyed upon and radicalised by another person in Ireland, um, who she converted to the Muslim faith, and uh, a religious leader told her it was uh, it was the obligation of all Muslims. Once a caliphate is declared, even if you don't respect the person who declared the caliphate, it's your obligation to travel to that caliphate. 
So he's rather than uh, Lisa Smith joining the terrorist group known as ISIS, she was going to live in the territory of Islamic State, according to our defence solicitor. And this is a subtle point, he said, that's been missed so far, that she wasn't going to join the fighting. She was going to live in this caliphate. Uh, he said by the time they, she went there in 2015, the fighting had finished in that area of the world. Uh, he said that she had never been involved in using weapons, in training people, in uh, fighting on the front line, mm. anything like that. That she that 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 she took a passive role uh, while she was there. And this is a, a, a subtlety that he, he, he that Mr. Carrigan was trying to drive home to the court as part of the bail application. She faces a, a trial now, obviously, uh, and when that trial will take place, I suppose, uh, is anybody's guess. If she's found guilty, there's uh, the prospect of 10 years in prison, up to 10 years in prison. Uh, she's been detained until next Tuesday. Does that mean that she'll be in court again next week? Or, or when uh, do we expect a, a trial to begin? Would that happen uh, before the Christmas break or would it be in the new year before uh, the trial begins, do you think, Connor? Uh, well, she's back in court next Tuesday, yes. She'll be she'll be taken from the Docus Centre back to court. As to when a trial will begin, um, certainly won't be this year. Um, uh, could be next year. Um, it, it, it all depends on the waiting list, I suppose, and various legal issues to be hashed out before the trial. I mean, there's, as with any case, there's going to be disclosure issues. There's going to be pre-trial applications. Mm. This is also a very novel charge, Um Obviously, we've had many membership of illegal organisation charges relating to domestic organisations here, but this is something that occurred outside the state. So that um, may or may not uh, raise its own difficulties, which could add to the delays. So there's many factors, uh, but it's not going to be for a good few months at, that, at the very least, I think, before we see an actual trial in this case. OK, can I ask you, incidentally, was she supported in court? And uh, not that I could see. No, it was a closed mm. court, or is an in-camera court for for most of this. Uh, so we had a lot of guards. We had our solicitors, of course, two solicitors from from Phoenix Law. Um, but uh, I couldn't see any uh, evidence of uh, support for her in court. It's not to say that it wasn't there, but um, there was no uh, obvious sign of uh, family members or, or, or friends. Okay, Connor. Thank you very much indeed. Much appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us here on the program this morning. Connor Gallagher is the crime correspondent for the Irish Times. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, poverty, uh, because uh, the number of people who are in consistent poverty fell from six point seven percent in two thousand and seventeen to five point six percent last year. Sean Healy, director of Social Justice Ireland, joins us now, and we'll talk about this in a moment but before we do let's hear a little bit from the Minister with responsibility for this the Minister for Social Protection Regina Doherty because she's been talking about these figures in the doll and how she hopes to improve on that improvement by the introduction of a social inclusion strategy I received a draft of our new social inclusion strategy only last week it's going to have a whole of government approach which recognises I believe what is a shared responsibility across government to achieve improved outcomes for the most vulnerable and marginalised in our society that I'm very happy to represent and to make sure that I try and look after and do my best to it. The roadmap is going to state, Chair, a clear ambition to achieve a long-held but yet unrealised target of reducing consistent poverty to 2% or less and also aspires to make Ireland one of the most socially inclusive states within the European Union. That would be a thing, wouldn't it, Sean Healy? 
Absolutely, and I have no problem with that at all. The only problem, the only question is uh, when is it actually going to come? She said the same thing last year, 12 months ago. Uh, in fact, she said the same thing a year and a half ago at the pre-budget uh, forum, I think about July 2018, uh, when we met her um, and uh, her officials. And uh, it was imminent at that time that this strategy would be published. We haven't seen it yet. So the reality is, of course, that um, Ireland keeps trundling along and Ireland is doing very well on a, by a, a range of numbers and in particularly particular the average income is going up and the sort of the, the majority of people have more money but the problem we have is mm. that the gap is growing between those who are being left behind and the rest that's why a social inclusion strategy is so urgently required and it's long past it's uh, launched uh, it should be available date by now the, it, when you look at the figures published by the central statistics office not ours mm. now central statistics and you transpose those into actually numbers of people you find that there's 689,000 people in Ireland are living in poverty and and of those, over 200,000 are children. And now, not just that, that they're, they're, that's the overall number, but 111,000 people are living in, in poverty even though they have a job. So, like, they're the working poor, if you like. And then one of the things that was really concerning about the new poverty numbers from the CSO is that it, poverty has been growing num- among over 65s, older people. Mm. It went up 20,000, 20, up to 78,000. Now, remember, the numbers over 65 are not that dramatically high, the uh, numbers of people, but we have a situation where the, the, the overall uh, poverty level there has been growing, or ha- has grown this in, in this past year, and that's quite staggering. And the catch in all of this is that when you look at what they did in the budget, they didn't actually increase welfare at all. So we have a, in 2020, what's going to happen is people with wages, uh, unless they're maybe on the minimum wage, which they didn't raise either, um, others who are in normal kind of decent wages, mm. they will see their income rise by about 3%. They'll obviously pay a chunk of that in tax, but they'll get half of it at least into their pockets, and they will be better off. The only people who get nothing are the vast majority of people who are on social welfare. There were a few, a few uh, targeted initiatives in the budget, but the vast majority of people on social welfare will not actually get uh, increases, nor will pensioners who are part of that, remember that. And then as well as that, the working poor won't see their situation improve because the government decided not to implement the recommendation of the Low Pay Commission to increase the minimum wage um, in, in 2020. Right. Uh, but is this a, a question of uh, the glass being half empty or half full? You obviously have a half empty glass. Uh, I take it from what the minister was saying yesterday, her glass is half full because she's been talking uh, about uh, those figures from uh, the CSO and how the uh, CSO is recording uh, that uh, there are fewer people in poverty and at risk of poverty under their survey on income and living conditions. And that's, that is certainly one way of spinning the numbers, but like there are there's 36,000 more people living in poverty in Ireland today than there were 10 years ago. So like we we it isn't as if we're making huge prog- progress or whatever. What really concerns me is the gap that's opening up 
between people on welfare and between the working poor on the one side and on the other people who have jobs and included in those people who are on welfare and in the working poor are older people and people with disabilities because they all people with disability also saw their poverty numbers rise now the bottom line in all of this is they're facing into 2020 and the whole point about the mm. tight budget and all that sort of stuff was to do with Brexit and so on. Now, it looks like Brexit may be passed, or at least the first phase of it may go through pretty soon after the British election. We'll see one way or another. But no matter what happens there, I don't think that the government can get away with what they've done for 2020. And I think we need a supplementary budget that would, in fact, uh, ensure that people who are living in poverty, whether they're on welfare whether they're in the working poor, whether they're elderly or whether they have a disability, that they all get at least the basic increase that would see them not see their standard of living fall in 2020. At the moment, we have a situation where they will get no extra money, but the the cost of living is going to rise by 1.5% or something like that. And not alone that, with Brexit coming and so on, there will be increases in in food costs and so on. Mm. And not alone that, but on top of that, the government has also brought in the carbon tax, which we agree with, but they didn't do the mitigation that was required to ensure that when food costs go up as a result of Mm. introducing the carbon tax, this will have a knock-on effect to worsen the standard of living of Ireland's poorest people. That's not acceptable under any Is that what you want? Do you want people to be in poverty? Do you like talking about people being in poverty? Uh, This is is the argument that Regina Doherty was making in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, And she's saying that this argument suits you, that this is what you want. And whilst you're doing it, uh, you're not looking at the figures because you don't like the figures. You're ignoring the trend, which is a downward trend. There's fewer people in poverty. Any attention to the CSO Silk reports that were released last week? And maybe that's because he doesn't like the direction that they're taking, you'd be much happier if we had people that were genuinely living uh, in persistent poverty. Total nonsense. And not alone is it nonsense, but the minister knows it's nonsense. What she's doing is spinning for the media and whatever, trying to put the best face on things. Look, we are acknowledging in everything that we do, we acknowledge the improvements that are there. However, the minister has been promising a social inclusion strategy for a year and a half, uh, it's imminent all the time. It still hasn't emerged. That's not good enough. Secondly, the, the budget, uh, the government made decisions in the budget to increase their own uh, salaries quite substantially. All, not just government, all the TDs and senators and so on will see their uh, salaries rise quite substantially um, in 2020. In line and with other public sector precisely. workers who were on the same grade as That's the politicians. Right. And correct. the politicians say that this means that politicians are not awarding themselves pay increases. But of course they are awarding themselves mm. pay increases because they are actually going along with that. I have no problem with them getting mm. an increase. What I have a problem with is they then go out and decide we don't have enough money Money to pay uh, the Ireland's poorest a minimum to maintain their standard of living. I'm not asking for any gains. They themselves will gain. Their actual their standard of living is going to not just be maintained; it's going to be improved uh, during the year. So is the situation. It won't be a huge improvement, mm. but it'll be a small improvement for people who have jobs. Most people, not not those on the minimum wage, but the others. Okay. And we, that what's required is a system. And this is like I'd love to have to be able to come on your program in the morning and say poverty in Ireland has achieved, or rather the Irish government has achieved uh, 
global goal one, number one, mm. which is set by the United Nations, which is no poverty. I would just love. Well, to so would everybody, but but you naysayer, you Christmas Scrooge, uh, you will not recognise uh, the progress that has been made. That's not true. And Regina Doherty says the government is doing a good job. The silk brought our numbers down last week to 5.6%. And again, I'll restate my thanks to the members of this House, particularly the members of Fianna Fáil who have supported the government's budget for the last number of years, because the direct targeted impacts that we have collectively done um, in helping lone parents and in helping children in this country have resulted in the silk figures of 5.6%. So with respect... Uh, what we're doing in targeted numbers are working. We have the lowest um, 4.8% of unemployment, one of the lowest numbers across the EU at the moment. And so what we're actually doing is actually working. Do you reject that out of hand? I say the government is not doing a good job when it leaves Ireland's poorest further behind. It, the government is not doing a good job when the standard of living of Ireland's poorest people deteriorates and is going to deteriorate in the coming year. And whether Regina Doherty or Leo Varadkar or anybody else in the cabinet thinks that they're doing a good job on that, I don't accept that. I do accept that incomes are going up. That's very good. And I am very positive about that incomes, but they're not going up for Ireland's poorest. The only source of income these people have is their welfare payments. And the government knows full well how important social welfare payments are when it comes to addressing poverty because that's one of the things that is you see from the from the figures is that if there were no social welfare payments, poverty would be over 40% of the population, but that's down to 14% thanks to the to the social welfare rates. The government knows this. Regina Doherty knows this. Leo Varadkar knows this. But this is what makes it even more shocking that they chose to ignore these the poorest in budget 2020. The measure of a society is how it treats its weakest, its most vulnerable. And on that score, we're not doing well at all. Okay, thank you. Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and t- text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in, including John from Navin, who list- was listening to your interview with Deputy Pather Tobin, and says, very easy, Michael, for opposition TDs to be against everything and say things would be different if they were in the job. But... They're not in a position to make the big decisions. So it's easy to criticise. Mm, that's true, yeah, absolutely. Kay listening in from Navin this morning. Loves the show, but wants to know what has Michael got against Michael Larry? What have I got against Michael yes, Larry? Because you seem to have something against him. <laughs> According <laughs> why, to Kay. Why, why would Kay think that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there were adverse findings against Michael Larry in uh, the Moriarty Tribunal and uh, he was a member of Fine Gael. Indeed, he was a minister for the Fine Gael party, a member of government at one time. Uh, of course, uh, those ties severed a long time ago. Uh, the government says it doesn't rely on the support of Michael Larry. Uh, and uh, Michael Larry has on occasion said he gives support to the government because of what the government gives to him in return. Uh, he spoke uh, in the Dáil the other evening and we asked Damien English if he would support Michael Larry and his call to have comments made by Paul Murphy retracted because of the support that Michael Larry was giving, which was allowing 
the government to stay in power. Without Michael Lowry, the government would not be in power. That's the bottom line. And that was the point of the questioning. It's not that I have anything against Michael Lowry. I'm sure he's a lovely man. Okay, well, there you go, Kay. She also added that Thomas Byrne is going to change the world when Fianna Fáil gets back in charge, even though Fianna Fáil were in charge when everything went wrong in this country in the first place. So All right. I've not been allowed to forget about that. Always good to hear from a Fine Gael supporter. Thanks for that, Kay. <laughs> Michael says, Jerry from Drogheda, I remember when Owen Murphy took over as minister and the big promise was that they would get the homeless figures down. Then the figure hit that dreaded 10,000 and that was major. Now it's over 10,500. These, Michael, are real people we are talking about. People who no longer have a home to call their own. I want to know how high does this figure have to go before the minister goes. Well, how high is the figure? Uh, I mean, that's the official figure. If we were using the old way of counting uh, before it got to 10,000, I think it probably would be in around 12,000. I'm not sure that would even be an accurate gauge Mm. of how many people uh, who are without a place that they can call their own home. When you take into account the number of people who are in direct provision, for example, if you take into account the number of women who have uh, suffered domestic violence and are living in refuges, for example, if you take into account uh, the number of people who are sofa surfing, sleeping on a friend's mm. sofa, uh, who have moved back into their parents' house with their family and houses are clogged up and overcrowded and so on. Uh, it's a, an incredible situation and not terribly surprising. Uh, they say that the problem is uh, supply and demand, uh, and I'm sure that's right, but the actual problem is cost. It's far too expensive to live in this country. Uh, nobody can afford to rent and it's more expensive to buy. Mm. Fiona was listening into your interview with Thomas Byrne. Still a lot coming in in relation to that and says that we voted for Thomas Byrne to act on our behalf, yet he and the other Fianna Fáil members didn't use their vote. They, uh, and she says the non-voters in the Dáil will be demanding that the electorate come out and use a vote to vote for them in the next election so that they will secure their seat. Mm. Well... Fianna Fáil says they did represent you in the doll. They say that you don't want an election. Had they voted with their conscience, they'd have voted against the minister and that would have resulted in an election. You'd have had to vote uh, coming up to Christmas uh, and then there would have been all the wrangling and trying to form a government and uh, Brexit on the horizon. David says nobody should be allowed to abstain, that they were voted in by the electorate to do to do a job. So do it. I can't abstain from anything in normal life. Why are politicians afforded this? Mary says, why can't people answer a question? The answer is either yes or no. That's what you were asked. Vote yes or no. So you didn't vote by abstaining. So the answer is no, says Mary. Mm-hmm. Richard says that's twice now that Fianna Fáil have abstained in votes of no confidence. They will abstain, but when the elections roll around, watch them tell you, the voter and their boss, how important your vote is. Hypocrisy at its finest. Mm. Jerry says he has to laugh at the constant whining about the government. And then as soon as there is an election, the same shower Mm. just waltzed back in. When the people get annoyed with Bill, they elect Ben. And when Ben annoys them, they re-elect Bill. And so it goes on and on and on. Yeah, but the problem is that when I go to vote, I I forget what Bill did. (laughs) Do you? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like a goldfish. (laughs) It goes out of your head. goes out of my head and uh, 
he promised me something and I go, sure, that's great. Yeah, like a goldfish and uh, around in circles we go. Another listener, Jacintha says, listening in to your whole discussion, discussion about housing and the vote of no confidence, my question to you, Michael, is will someone else do a better job? Is it not the system in this country that is wrong? There is so much that needs to be rectified that you just feel everything needs to be completely overhauled looked at with a new, fresh pair of eyes and start off from nothing again and see what we can do to get people back into homes. I feel Mm. the biggest single uh, problem that uh, has attributed to the housing crisis Jacinda, is the fact that there were so many years when no social housing was being built. Okay, very good Jacinta. A very, very good question I think and many thanks for asking that question. Is it uh, the government's fault? Is it the minister's fault? Or is it the fault of uh, the system that has uh, come about as a a result of continued failures uh, over many years? A very serious question and uh, I suppose at the end of the day many people would say, well, look, uh, it's uh, the minister who presides over the success or the failure of any policy. And the question that the TDs were asked uh, the other night is whether they have confidence in Owen Murphy as the Minister for Housing or not. Marie, you were in Drogheda yesterday and you asked people if they had confidence in Owen Murphy. No, not really. Why? Because of all the amount of homeless people that's living on the streets. He's obviously doing something wrong. Does it bother you? Yeah, it does, yeah. Like, I don't personally know anyone that's homeless now at the minute, but we've had our fair share of troubles in our house and um, there's been a couple of people I know that's been living out rough and it's not nice. I've known of people, yeah, that have been trying to save to get a mortgage and it is tough and I'm like, you have to both be working full-time in order to get a mortgage these days. It's not as easy as it was years ago. No, none whatsoever. It's absolutely, it's a brutal now, what, what's going on. You know, no houses, there's plenty of houses for people, you know. Would you have friends who are struggling? Yeah, I would, yeah. it's uh, You can see it for all of them, like, you know, financially and that, like, you know, trying to get one day over and another day and, you know, private renting, it's not cheap, you know, and then there is houses there, but council houses and sure, they won't give them. Unfortunately, things don't seem to be being fixed the way they should be and there are issues out there and there are way too many homeless people and rental prices are too high. And there aren't the measures being put in place to deal with that. There are measures which are not working. There needs to be rent restrictions that actually work. And there needs to be more housing built, but only in areas where there are employment. And Drogheda is a huge problem there because I'm from East Meath. And there's building and building and building all over Drogheda. And everybody is commuting miles, which is a disaster for all sorts of mental and physical health and family life and marital relationships and everything. So there should only be houses built where there's employment so people don't have to commute. But that just takes planning. It does. And were you disappointed that the minister survived the no-confidence vote? Well, I'd say in, he's possibly doing his best and I wonder how anyone else would do any better without the political will behind him. It's easy to pin it on one person. I don't know enough about the details of what he's actually doing. But I think in so many areas in Irish life, the resistance to change is a problem and then there are lobbies there property market all of these things uh, is very strong so he's up against it I'd say I wouldn't like his job No I don't I don't have any confidence in any of the government in this country Why? 
because they're absolutely just in it for their own. They're on it for themselves. They're not helping the homeless. They're not helping anyone. And the march on the 5th of December is going to be brilliant. Everybody is struggling, and I think it's shocking that we have so many homeless people and homeless children. It's a disgrace. Well, I don't know about confidence, but I do feel sorry for him because I think he has a very tough job, you know. And I don't even know if the uh, actual list is a genuine number or not. You know, don't think all these people are on the streets. No, I don't. Why? Well, look at all the people that's homeless and that. Does that upset you? Well, it would when you see all this on the television, people, children and everything. None whatsoever. He doesn't work, it doesn't work. What did he do before he was the housing minister? What would he know about housing anybody? Do you know a lot of people that are suffering? Yeah. Basically, the whole town is suffering. It's not just this town, it's nationwide. And do you worry about the numbers on the street? Does it upset you? Of course it does, yeah, as an order citizen. Yeah. Absolutely no way. From last week, the figures, the homeless figures went from 10,395 to 10,500 last night. So already in a week you can see 200 people more homeless. And what is he doing about it? Nothing, nothing. So I would agree, he's, he's not fit for purpose. Out with him. What do you see as the biggest problems? Um, ooh, what do I see? Well, obviously the housing crisis. Um, people who are in distress with their mortgages, they can't get them resolved. Um, very little been done by the state, in my opinion. Very little. All right. Well, some strong opinions, uh, no doubt uh, about that. A lot of people uh, who took some time out to speak with you yesterday. Uh, Marie, uh, and little confidence, uh, I think it's true to say, in Owen Murphy as the Minister for Housing. That's right, Michael. People kind of feel that maybe it's time for change. Uh, can I go to just one or two mm. I have on uh, your discussion with Sean Healy about poverty? Mm. Uh, a listener says, yes, there are people in Ireland, Michael, in genuine poverty. There are also others, I feel, who abuse the system. They get everything going for nothing and seem to be better off than those of us who are working our butts off. Okay. Have no problem with people on social welfare payments getting double pay for Christmas. I hope it helps get them through the festive season. However, there are people who are working who are in poverty and I think these are forgotten about. They are just over the threshold in many cases to qualify for supports, yet they are sacrificing food and heat to pay their mortgage or rent. Michael, this is a reality for some, but it's not being acknowledged, I feel, or recognised by this government. I feel that Sean Healy is making a lot of sense. Okay, Sean Healy of Social Justice Ireland, who we spoke to earlier on in the programme. That's it, Michael. All right, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number, 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. This week, uh, the housing charity Threshold uh, published its annual report for 2018, showing how it helped keep 11,500 people in their homes over the course of uh, the 12 months involved. That's 11,500 people, 11,500 stories and some very different stories at that. She was six months pregnant when she explained the situation to her landlady. The landlady told her she would have to leave before the baby arrived. Her excuse was that the neighbours in the apartments wouldn't like the crying. She waited until late in her pregnancy to tell the landlady because she was afraid of what the reaction might be. Taoiseach, these are the words reported in today's echo of Conor Lynch of Threshold, telling of the experience of one renter in Cork. Can you even begin to imagine the stress that heartlessness would have had on that woman? The worry, the anxiety. And she is far from alone. Threshold say that this is not an isolated case. 
and recount another incident of a pregnant woman who was living in private rented accommodation where a new baby was not wanted by the landlord. She ended up moving into homeless accommodation with her newborn. John Mark McCafferty is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, Threshold. He's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, John Mark, and thanks as always uh, for joining us. Uh, some uh, incredible stories, some of us might think, told by Donica O'Leary to the doll there yesterday. That's right, Michael, and um, thanks for the opportunity. So, I mean, what happened yesterday was interesting in the sense that this, this story broke um, in relation to uh, this uh, poor woman who was pregnant and worried about losing her home. Now, in the end, through the work of Threshold, um, uh, her tenancy was saved, in fact. Um, but what also broke yesterday was the launch of our annual report. So these two stories happening um, simultaneously, uh, showing the, the difference and the impact that Threshold makes, um, especially through our tenancy protection service. And uh, the report shows that our service has saved over 11,000 people. So that's 11,000 stories, families, uh, you know, parents, children who are in their homes, in their rented homes and not in emergency accommodation. And that's 11,499 stories in addition to the one that we heard uh, that would make us all stop to think. Yeah, and I guess it makes us stop to think because of how precarious um, certain tenancies are and a growing number of us are renting and we're renting for for more of our lives than in the past. Um, And I guess the spectre hanging over many families and and, and people is, Mm. will our landlord um, end this tenancy at some point through no fault of our own? Will they sell? Uh, does one of the landlord's relatives want to move in? Are they going to do substantial renovation? Are they going to just end the tenancy at the end of our... Uh, And for whatever the reason, we know that people are are being moved out uh, and uh, that it's not because uh, they did anything wrong. Each month, uh, the homeless figures are are published and each month they get worse. More people are are in a homeless situation. We ask the government each month, why is that? If you're doing so much, if you're helping so many people, why are there more people homeless? And they say, well, more people are becoming homeless than we're housing. Uh, And you found that three quarters of the people who were evicted... uh, were not guilty of wrongdoing. Yeah, so three quarters were, if you like, no-fault evictions. People found themselves uh, confronted with a, a notice of termination uh, when they, you know, they hadn't done anything wrong themselves. It wasn't a case of, you know, rent arrears or antisocial behaviour. Um, it was a case of um, uh, the landlord using, uh, being able to use, I guess, mm-hmm. the law at their disposal to end a tenancy at a certain time, and. Um, we're working and advising tenants right across the country um, through our helpline, 1800 454 and also in our face-to-face um, clinics in, in Dublin, Cork and Galway and, and certain outreach um, areas, mm. um, listening to the stories of families and, and individuals and also trying to build cases, um, whether that's talking to the Department of Social Protection for a rent supplement increase or whether it's trying to negotiate with a landlord or indeed our growing caseload of representation where we where we either represent um, tenants at the Residential Tenancies Board at hearings or where we um, assist people to represent themselves where they have the capacity to do so 
at those hearings. And often that's about, you know, the, the hearing, uh, the outcome of that hearing will determine whether or not um, a family can, can hold on to their home. So our work has intensified in that regard. We're doing a lot more of the kind of tailored advice and um, casework and representing um, renters um, in, in the cities and in the t- provincial towns. Um, at hearings, you know, and those cases may be, you know, may originate anywhere. Uh, it could be, you know, Cavan, Monaghan, Blouth, Meath. Mm-hmm. Um, so that work has really kind of uh, got more in-depth. Um, and I guess the point we're making is, yes, um, the housing, the homeless figures are deteriorating. They're, uh, they're worse than they've ever been. However, without the work of charities like ourselves, and it's not just ourselves, mm-hmm. You know, there are other charities in the mix, but from a, from a threshold point of view, um, we believe that um, there would be uh, at least double uh, the number of people who are currently in emergency accommodation if it wasn't for our, our work, because we we worked with families and individuals whose tenancies were at risk. They received mm. notice of termination or a rent increase that they couldn't afford or other issues that really put their, their tenancy in jeopardy. Well, there's more people who continue to live in their homes uh, than there are on the homeless uh, list. Uh, 11,500 yes. people remain in their homes because of your intervention. Uh, there's 10,500 people uh, who are considered to be homeless. So uh, the maths are simple. Uh, it would be in the region of uh, twenty. 2,000, isn't it, if Threshold hadn't been there uh, to help those people stay in their homes. But when people have been asked to leave through no fault of their own, you say that three quarters uh, of them, at least, uh, have been asked to leave through no fault of their own. Uh, Is it that the landlord was entitled to ask them to leave? Um, There was was a mixture there. Um, Over half of the notices of termination were invalid. Now, um, they were invalid for, for two main reasons. One, um, there may have been an entitlement, but the the notice was um, was wrongly written or wrongly issued. They hadn't the landlord hadn't followed the regulations mm. in terms of giving people you know um, proper notice, notice and yeah. all of that, and the paperwork wasn't um, in place. I guess for other invalid notices, it was because um, they there wasn't a grounds for the landlord to end those tenancies. So um, I think it's important to say that of those notices of termination, the majority were either um, technically incorrect or the landlord didn't have grounds. Now, for the remainder of those notices of termination, the landlord did have grounds because there are a variety of ways in which a landlord is entitled to end a tenancy. Selling the property... Um, substantial renovation. Now, the bar for that is very high now. You have to do a lot of renovation in order to um, be able to end um, end a tenancy. Um, and also, um, if a family member of the landlord, the landlord or a family member, close family member, wishes to move in, that's another reason uh, for, for ending the tenancy. Mm. I guess if you come to the end of your six-year tenancy, your thing called a part four tenancy, a landlord can end it um, also. So there are a variety of um, ways in which a landlord is entitled to end those tenancies. And, and I guess families and individuals um, face that worry um, that their mm. landlord can um, end those tenancies in that way. Um, and, and we're working with that. And, you know, I guess we can't save every tenancy um, mm. because the, the, the law is... Um, somehow attempting to balance the rights and responsibilities of both the tenants and the landlords. 
but we can help to um, challenge those notices of termination. We can uh, negotiate with landlords so that um, they may moderate the the, the rent increases or or, or, or not uh, go ahead with the rent increase, mm. or indeed find some kind of solution between landlord and tenant uh, that otherwise might not be the case. And who and is the tenant in? Uh, the circumstances that you're assisting people, because quite often uh, the tenant is de facto the council, uh, because uh, landlords are being paid by the council under the HAP scheme, uh, and uh, then uh, they've uh, made that accommodation available to somebody else. But are you talking about people who are working in the private sector who are renting privately? We're assisting people across the board. Uh, The majority of people we're assisting are on you know, middle to, to low incomes. Many are HAP tenants and, and HAP issues arise uh, frequently. Um, but you can uh, find a situation where we advise and assist um, people who are working full-time, working in a variety mm. of settings, either they themselves are, are, are you know, government employees. Or but does that not highlight a, a failure on the part of the local council? Um, well, the, the, there's a failure on behalf of the, the state, whether it's central government or mm. local government, to house its population, um, and that that's going back 30 years. That's going back to you know decades of underinvestment um, in social housing mm. and relying on the private sector to provide housing. Now, you know, the, relying on the private sector to provide housing at one level is okay mm. if. The private rented sector housing is affordable, is of good quality, and where you have, you know, long um, tenancies, you know, people stay mm-hmm. for 10, 20, 30 years. But, but there is a contract, isn't there, between uh, the landlord and uh, the local authority, the council, uh, when it comes uh, to the HAP scheme. And uh, if the landlord issues an invalid notice, surely that's a breach of contract with the council. Now, when it comes to HAP, um, of course, that there are certain uh, benefits to being on HAP compared to, you know, say the rent supplement uh, scheme in general terms. But um, if you're a family um, in receipt, uh, and you're, if you like, uh, your landlord is in receipt of HAP, mm. there are there are a couple of issues there. One, um, you still have to top up uh, and pay more over and above what would be a social, um, mm. a local authority rent, mm. um, and you may even be topping up over and above that. And you are still subject to the the vagaries of the private rented sector. You mm-hmm. don't have guaranteed security of tenure. You mm-hmm. you know you don't have the same rights that a, a local authority tenant would have. No, of course not. So, but there is a contract, is there not, between the local authority and the landlord? There is. But uh, if, and uh, if the landlord issues an invalid notice, is that not a breach of contract? Should the, in other words, should the council not be intervening in those circumstances? I guess where a landlord is, you know, issuing an invalid notice, it's it's now the preserve of the residential tenancies board, um, and the one welcome thing is that uh, legislation in the summer, mm. uh, last summer, came in and it does strengthen the investigative and sanctions powers of the residential tenancies board when it comes to landlords issuing invalid notices, um, and but it does require people to report them, um, and then sometimes. Mm. It might not be that individual that will gain from that case. It might be future tenants 
that uh, mm. might benefit from that landlord being challenged. Fair enough, but I, I don't understand why the council wouldn't be taking the case uh, to the Residential Tenancies Board. Uh, I mean, uh, the council will look for the landlord to have a rent book and all these kind of things and uh, different regulations that are in place, and it would seem to be a fairly strict contract that the council insists uh, being met to the letter, but when somebody tries to evict somebody and illegally evict somebody, they stand idly by from what you're saying. Well, I guess... Um the tenant is, is on their own at one level, you know, been a HAP tenant. They, they just simply don't have the protections that you would have mm. if you were a local authority tenant. Um, and so the HAP tenants can find themselves paying mm-hmm. over, over the odds for, for their, their rent, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if that landlord um, uses one of the grounds in which they can end a tenancy, uh, then the the tenant is is at the mercy of, of of that landlord's decisions, and I guess that's where threshold comes in. Okay, and let's uh, give your number then uh, on that note uh, because our, our time is actually up, John Mark. But if uh, people do want help and assistance, uh, that's what threshold is there for. As you say, your number is one eight hundred four five four. Four five four. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this you. morning. Thank you very much. John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive with Threshold. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, four newly elected TDs took uh, their seats in uh, the Dáil this week, warned by many who welcomed them not to get too comfortable before they voted in a confidence motion which have, could have seen uh, the government fall. Let's talk uh, about uh, the week that was with Michael Brennan, political editor with uh, the Sunday Business Post. A very good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, one of the things uh, we learned uh, this week is uh, that there are a few in the doll who have confidence in Owen Murphy or the housing policies of the current government. And the other thing that we have learned, and it seems very clear at this stage, is that the government is hanging on by a thread. That's right, Michael. That uh, result on on, uh, Tuesday night was 56 votes uh, for the government and 53 against when it came to the vote of conference in Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy. So they really are uh, in a very vulnerable state now. Dara Murphy, of course, the Fine Gael Corkner Central TD, who's getting a lot of attention at the moment, has has resigned. So that gap is now down to two votes, uh, two independent TDs, effectively. Mm. Um, and and they're 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 just waiting for what's going to happen in the spring when I think obviously we're drawing very close to a general election at this stage. It's kind of odd, isn't it, how much attention he's getting because uh, I think there's a lot of us who, who, up to a few days ago at least, uh, had forgotten him and were then kind of, oh yeah, no, I remember him now, I I remember the face, I haven't heard from him for some time. That's right, he had managed to hide successfully in plain sight for a very, very long time and I think it was the focus on on the double voting issue, uh, which, which sort of brought a renewed spotlight on doll procedures and claiming of expenses and then suddenly when he announced that he was he was resigning as a TD to take up a, a new position in the European Commission then people said oh what has he been doing for mm. the last two years and all of a sudden then you get the the, 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 re, the public realisation that he was claiming his expenses yet being virtually invisible as, as I and many others can uh, testify to uh, over the last two years in the doll. Mm. Uh, he didn't speak at all over the course of uh, the last year and I think once uh, the year before that uh, but uh, his expenses uh, was highlighted uh, just in advance of the vote 
And the government relied so heavily on his support and then the Kenny support, let alone the support of the independents, which we can talk about in a moment. Uh, but the support that he gave uh, and the problem of homelessness uh, were coupled uh, together by Peter McVeary. Uh, and I, I think that resonated a lot with people, didn't it? Some of the injustices that uh, exist in this world. It did. Um, I was watching Peter McFerry um, on on Virgin Media's Tonight Show um, during the week, and you could see the opposition politicians on the panel with him just going silent because they knew Peter McFerry's criticism was a lot more damning than anything they could say because of the the credibility he has. And when he drew in the point of Darren Murphy, that Darren Murphy was able to claim all his expenses while he went to court and saw um, young men being uh, prosecuted for stealing uh, items of small value, you know, that, that, that was very damaging for Fine Gael because of the credibility that Peter McFerry has. Mm. Uh, and uh, he's claimed a lot and uh, may uh, be able to claim a lot more in the future, it would seem, as well. Yeah, I think I've seen one report of his salary uh, working for uh, Ursula van der Leyen, the new uh, head of the European Commission, uh, a salary at 150,000, uh, mm-hmm. which is you know a very considerable amount. So you know financially, he has he has made a big jump from his doll salary, but the you know there's a lot of negative publicity there and. Certainly his own party are, are hoping people will, will have forgotten about him by the general election, but it's a, he has contributed to a very bad week for Fine Gael. All right, and over a course of uh, 20 years, uh, his uh, pension will be worth in the region of €500,000. Uh, this is uh, for somebody who, as you say, is going off to take uh, a job that's worth €150,000. Had he not been there, had he resigned just hours before the vote of confidence in Owen Murphy and Thomas Pringle had been uh, in uh, the Dáil, the outcome would have been somewhat different, wouldn't it, uh, in that uh, the government won by three votes, uh, but uh, on that calculation they'd have only won by one vote, I think. Yeah, it would have been down to even tighter margins and so on. I did see uh, Dennis Nocton, who was one of the independent TDs, the former minister who supported the government and mm. gave them that, that three-vote winning margin. He's uh, in the Irish Times today saying that he got uh, a concession from the government in return that they would uh, amend legislation so that if you're in a nursing home as an older person, um, your fam- you, you can rent out your house and mm. pay less tax on it than you previous than you currently would and he says that could uh, contribute to solving the housing crisis yeah. now that actually in fairness from dennis was was a, was a pretty sensible solution and and maybe one good thing that did come out of that uh, yeah. that housing uh, but but no an admission vote. that there was a quid pro quo uh, and uh, in return for his support uh, he Uh, was uh, given this concession by government uh, in relation to the Fair Deal nursing home scheme. I was asking Patrick Tobin if he felt that that might have been the case uh, with the other two independents uh, earlier in the programme this morning uh, because the government also enjoyed the support of Noel Grealish, uh, who has been very controversial in recent times, and also uh, of Michael Lowry. Uh, Michael Lowry... uh, was speaking in the Dáil uh, during uh, the debate on housing uh, the other night, but not on housing. Uh, he was talking about what was said about him by Paul Murphy, uh, and he was saying he wasn't a tax dodger and he wanted Paul Murphy to retract statements made about him. But I- I'm not sure there was much support for Michael Larry. I asked Damien English to tell us whether he supported Michael Larry, and he said he didn't have the time to think about it. 
Yeah, uh, no, the the government are, are certainly, they've always been uncomfortable in, in the fact that they depend on Michael Lowry's support. I wrote Michael maybe two years ago about the fact that um, he has campaigned for a 40-bed a uh, sort of patient hospital down in Clonmel in South Tipperary General Hospital, and that has been delivered. It is, it is, it is, it is there because um, he his support is needed by the government and he asked for it and, and as far as I know it's either open or about mm. to open um, and nobody in all honesty believes that Michael Lowry or Noel Grealish are supporting the government for nothing. They're veteran mm. politicians and they know how this works if you support me well then then I expect you to support me in some other way. Mm. It won't be written down on paper anywhere but they just might arrive. <laughs> well, I think it was it. written in the Tipperary Star wasn't it? Yes in, in that case it certainly was yeah. But you, you might mm. expect Michael or Noel to arrive into mm. uh, into government buildings in the next few weeks and they might just have a, a plan for some local initiative and the government will think it's a great idea but mm. there's no deal, you know, so that's, yeah. that's how you can do these things. Or, or maybe the support for Owen Murphy was uh, the final piece of uh, that jigsaw for that healthcare facility uh, in Tipperary. Uh, I, 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 suspect, mm. I suspect the price may mm. have increased that okay. <laughs> there'll be some other, uh, some well, other proposals. Yeah, well, well, I, I did see Michael Lowry uh, say that he would like to see uh, a separate funding made, uh, capital funding made uh, available for housing refugees. Uh, and him making those statements around the time of the vote and the housing minister did raise some curiosity uh, at this end. And uh, like that, we were wondering uh, how that uh, might uh, compare to views on refugees that Noel Grealish has and how the government might balance those views. Yeah, um, I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, is there a, you know, is there some new uh, direct provision centre or or, or 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 some new government built direct provision mm. centre opening up in Tipperary in the next while or so? But that just or in Galway, or in Galway, or in Galway. Uh, or in Galway. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Lowry might prefer them to be in Galway, uh, and Noel Grealish might agree if there's no Africans in it. Yeah, I, and, and this is the kind of. Uh, moral ground that the government finds itself on uh, and uh, to survive the vote uh, on that basis uh, leaves them in a, a, a very questionable position and the question then I think is how long can they continue? I think realistically there's a, an acknowledgement in, in Fine Gael and in the government that, you know, every people, Taoiseach Lear Radcar has spoken about May as a general election date, but uh, nobody expects it to go that far and that there could be another motion of no conference in, in a different minister, mm-hmm. most likely Health Minister Simon Harris, because health is the other big pressure area along with housing and that that would then give the likes of Fianna Fáil an opportunity to pull down the government so that's why Fine Gael are talking about we better we better be ready to move before it gets to that point early next year. Okay, how early might that be? I, I think realistically, if if we get a, a, a decisive result in the British general election mm. next week, and and we have Boris Johnson uh, going to get his deal ratified and agreed, then that frees up the Brexit issue, and you're you look like things can happen in in February. I would imagine, you know, okay. January maybe a little bit early, but but February, you imagine, is definitely possible. Okay, we'll leave it there, Michael. Thank you indeed for joining us here this morning, Michael Brennan, political editor, editor with the Sunday Business Post. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, the Oireachtas Committee on Children heard from Scouting Ireland yesterday and was told that the organisation wanted to apologise again to victims of child sexual abuse and also to acknowledge how children were failed by the organisations in the past. Recently, RTE Investigates programme again shone a searing light on the hurt done to young people in the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland and the Scouting Association of Ireland. We recognise the courage and bravery of all survivors who have told their stories directly to us and who featured on the programme. It is an example of leadership to all and is humbling. We again apologise unreservedly to those who were hurt by the actions of adult volunteers in these legacy organisations. The picture that emerged of these organisations over the past 18 months is grim and shocking. Although Scouting Ireland inherited this situation from the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland and the Scout Association of Ireland, we have not shirked our responsibilities in looking after our survivors, inviting them to contact us directly, which the majority did, offering support where we can, and we are continuing to deal with the consequences of the betrayal that some adults in the past visited upon our most vulnerable members. Adrian Tennant, who is uh, the chair of uh, Scouting Ireland, uh, talking to members of the Oireachtas Committee on uh, Children yesterday. John Kelly, who is uh, the coordinator of SOCA, the Survivors of Child Abuse in Ireland, is on the line with us. Good morning to you, John, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Scouting Ireland has many stories to tell. Uh, There's many terrible stories at that. uh, But uh, if you were to sum it up simply... Uh, it is uh, a classic case, uh, if I can put it that way, of institutional abuse, isn't it? Well, well of course it is. And, uh, you know, it's like deja vu, to be quite honest, Mike. Mm. Uh, the, the, this is, it appears to be the same pattern of exactly what's happening uh, in the institutional child abuse and anything related to uh, the Catholic Church. There's a clear pattern there. And, moreover, ironically... The person who's carrying out this review, which I know, is uh, Ian Elliott. He was also the child protection officer for the Catholic Church. Now, a lot of victims would ask that this review that they're doing, is it independent? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be transparent? Given the fact that Ian Elliott himself was appointed, he worked for the Scouts of Ireland, he was Mm -hmm. a consultant as a, a child protection officer in 2017. Now, you have to ask, how objective can he be then? This is what a lot of victims believe. And really? I, mean, I, I am surprised to hear you say that, Sean, I have to say. Uh, because I'm, well, I'm, actually, come here. Yeah. I'm surprised. I'm not saying anything about... No, I know I'm that. I'm not you what victims... No, I know that, but I, I, also, I also know that you have an awful lot of respect for Ian Elliot. In fact, I do. I've said yeah. this on time and time and time yeah, again. Because, so what because I am saying to you let, is, let, Let's remind ourselves, Ian Elliot investigated abuse in the church before he was appointed exactly. the child protection officer. Yes. Oh, and when he investigated I, I, I the abuse... Nothing but, and that's mm-hmm. why I, I want yeah. to mm-hmm. say straight away, I do yeah. not wish to impugn this man. No, I always no. held him... Oh, I know that, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and I know that, and I wouldn't question that, John. I, 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 I guess because... Victims, Mike, have uh, come to me and said... Oh, no, I understand, but... Yeah, just to put the point to you, I've heard you speak uh, in the highest of terms, yes. with the highest of regard for Ian Elliot, uh, and I am surprised to, to hear you question the independence uh, of what's well, happening. I'm sa- what I am saying, rather than me, I'm saying mm. victims yes. question the independence. That's what they're saying. Mm. Now, I can understand why they would feel, because you see, let me give you a couple of examples. 
And I've been following this scout for a long, long time. Now, and Ian Elliot would know himself, is that in there was complaints, a very serious complaint made in 1987 about one particular person. Now, he wasn't removed to 2017. Now, and then there was another very serious one in 1996. Now, when you look back, because one of the pieces of legislation that we were instrumental in getting was children's first legislation guidelines. Now, that came out in 2012. The Scouts of Ireland was established in 2004. So you have to ask, even during the time, Ian and I was there as a child, is why this wasn't brought up from 2004 under the... Why wouldn't the children, in a sense, protect it under the legislation that was brought in in 2012? Scouts themselves, now I know I heard what they said yesterday and they were talking about historic abuse under Mm -hmm. the Catholic Scouts of Ireland. Mm -hmm. But they knew about a case uh, from 1987 and 1996 and they did very little. And this is why I said about deja vu and the pattern. It's very easy to follow from victim's perspective. Mm. Uh, and how abusers were moved around rather than punished. I mean, we heard specifically about David O'Brien, one of uh, the leaders, uh, and the four boys, uh, yeah. now men, who appeared on Prime Time talk about the abuse that he meted down to them. I think when he was asked, uh, did he, he said he couldn't remember, and he couldn't remember how many children he had abused. Well, that's again another pattern. Look, a paedophile is by nature, and the very name of it, isn't one person. They actually share with each other, they contact each other, paedophiles, and they... We should have been... I, I raised this question with the minister uh, on numbers of occasions, with the children's ministers, and I said, look, the fact is, matters anywhere children are, that's where paedophiles will seek. So it was clear something wasn't right with Scout Ireland for a long, mm. long time. Whether it was his predecessor, the Catholic Scouts of Ireland, mm. it was clear that there wasn't. And, so, uh, and like the church, uh, there were people who knew, there was a nod and a wink, and a, oh God, you know what he's like, and all that sort of stuff, yeah. and uh, suspicions, and more than suspicions, uh, and uh, people advising people to keep children away from them, and so on. Well, it beggars belief, and I'm talking about not the predecessor, the, 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 children, the Catholic Church uh, Children's Scouts, I'm talking about the since 2004, when the, the Scout Ireland was set up, that there's been allegations going on about a certain person from 1987, mm-hmm. and he wasn't removed till last year. Now, that just beggars belief. Mm. And, and that was the urge. So for somebody, we've heard it all before, but to say, we apologise, and you're bravery, and this, and that, and mm-hmm. the end of it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you go back, and I'm just hoping, I really am hoping, that it doesn't have the same pattern as the inquiry because uh, that happened for the cheap people of institutions because no one was brought to justice. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Now, what I'm afraid which might extend this, and it might have to happen, and I'm, I heard uh, Sean Sherlock from the, who's on the committee yesterday raise certain questions. And Labour Party. He, yes, yes, he's the Labour, mm-hmm. Labour, Labour Senator. Uh, but uh, what he said is, and it, he makes a very valid point because we've been raised this long time, is that even after this, bearing in mind this is an internal review from mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Scouting Ireland, but there will more than likely have to be some form of external, independent review at the end of this. 
Okay. So this might drag it out, and indeed we might need a public inquiry. I would say we didn't. This is what victims are saying to us, because it's taken the same pattern, same apology, same length of time to remove certain people, moving people around, etc. Now, is it, are they going to get the same thing where they don't get justice? And that was what worried me. Uh, which seemed, we don't seem to have learned an awful lot. And then, is there other organisations that deal with children out there? Mm-hmm. We know it now. We've seen it with the swimming, haven't we? We've seen it with the scouts. Mm-hmm. It's anywhere children are. Will we ever learn, I suppose, is the question. John, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining us as always. John Kelly, coordinator of SOCA, Survivors of Child Abuse in Ireland, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.